0: Everyone, welcome back to the What Is Money show. Sitting down again today with Mister Max Hillebrand, and we're going to continue further into Rothbard's book, The Ethics of Liberty. And today, we're going to start with the moral status of relations to the state. And I'm going to read an excerpt here to get us going. Rothbard says, "Quote." It means, for example, that no one is morally required to obey the state, except insofar as the state simply affirms the right of just private property against aggression. For as a criminal organization, with all of its income and assets derived from the crime of taxation, the state cannot possess any just property. This means that it cannot be unjust or immoral to fail to pay taxes to the state to appropriate the property of the state, which is in the hands of aggressors, to refuse to obey state orders or to break contracts with the state, since it cannot be unjust to break contracts with criminals. Morally, from the point of view of proper political philosophy, Quote, unquote, stealing from the state, for example, is removing property from criminal hands is, in a sense, homesteading property, except that instead of homesteading unused land, the person is removing property from the criminal sector of society, a positive good, unquote. So that is quite the indictment (laughs) against the largest business in the world statism
1: yeah it's it's really solid right uh, rothbard does not pull any punches here and uh, again he, he builds here on all the foundation that we built before right and and, and he just stayed outright that well the the state is just a monopolization or institutionalization of of crime and aggression right? which we've worked on right it, it is that is the defining characteristic of it mm-hmm. uh, and th- therefore it, it's a it's a special case of human action Right. we're literally dealing with terrorists and criminals here, uh, who steal from people every day uh, as their only way of acquiring capital, and right? with with literally zero voluntary interaction involved. Uh, and it, that means that any resource that the state commands uh, are not justly his. Uh, it cannot be uh, just property is defined at that that what's voluntarily exchanged or homesteaded, which the state does neither of them. Um, uh, well, arguably, um, at least in general, um, so th- that means that taking from the state uh, is simply, um, you know, taking a purse back from the robber who stole it from the mm. old lady, right? mm-hmm. and uh, and there is nothing wrong with that. Uh, and so, is, of course, to to refuse orders to hand over your property uh, to the state um,
0: that is just uh, saying no to a criminal. Right. Yeah, I am, I have this quote from Nietzsche bouncing around in my mind he said that everything the state has is stolen everything it says is a lie (laughs) and i mean i I don't mean to laugh but it's just so you feel as if we're almost living in a science fiction novel or movie of some kind when you hear that because like how can the dominant institution in the world be the most corrupt enterprise imaginable to say that everything they have is stolen, everything they say is a lie. Um, And Rothbard goes on to say, quote, lying to the state then also becomes a fortiori morally legitimate. Just as no one is morally required to answer a robber truthfully when he asks if there are any valuables in one's house. So no one can be morally required to answer truthfully Similar questions asked by the state, e.g., when fill when filling out income tax returns. Unquote. So in the same vein that he's saying it's morally legitimate to steal from the state, because you, you're not even stealing technically. I guess you're just re-your homesteading, I think was the point he made. That you also um it's morally legitimate to lie to the state, which is to say. Not report accurately on your income tax returns. I mean, this is this is damn near heresy. (laughs) That's right. Uh, It
1: it is. It is very much. And I I wonder how that contrasts here with Jordan Peterson's view of you know staunchly always telling the truth. Um, And uh, I, I wonder what he would say when it comes to talking with criminals uh and and knowing that a actual theft and harm is going to take a
0: place depending on the revelation of the information mm. um that's a really interesting point because yeah if you you ask peterson if there's someone breaking into your house and they're asking where a certain valuable is or a certain person is would you be impelled in that case to speak the truth knowing that it would bring harm to person or property um
1: yeah, and and he, here again is where uh, I, I, we ought to differentiate, right? The, the morals and the ethics, add to a sense, mm-hmm. right? That um, you you might have a a that the moral to always tell the truth, right? And and to try to live by that, which is very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the question of when do you actually harm someone else, right, the the ethical question, uh, is much more clear cut because with most lies there is no violation of of scarce property or property in scarce resources. <clears throat> Um, which which is the only ethical crime
0: yeah i'm reminded here that the old adage that all is fair in love and war um i guess the love side is much more complicated in that adage but in the war side if someone's aggressing against you right to your previous point there's the yin and yang of non-aggression and self-defense someone aggresses against you then you have The right if not the impulsion to defend yourself so i guess the same would be true about deceit if someone is aggressing against you or deceiving you that you would have the right to do it back i guess deceit's a little bit complicated too because you might not know in the moment when you're being deceived yeah that's
1: a very difficult uh very difficult thing right um and intent, uh, is, is very cumbersome to, to really find out and to prove. Um, and yeah, it, it, again, it's, that's where, where praxeology makes it a lot easier. And, right? mm-hmm. um, when we're limiting it on, on scarce resources, where, where deceit, uh, um, where, where it's obvious when, when a certain deceit, uh, makes harm, mm-hmm. um, as soon as it, it turns into violation of scarce property, uh.
0: Yeah, so hmm. all right, one thing that I thought about, and I think I messaged you about this previously, was if we're looking for the persons that have justly acquired, let's just focus on real estate initially, land, right? I feel like if you rewind all of human history, you'll see one violent conquest after another in terms of... uh homesteading land homesteading is the wrong word because it's not homesteaded. uh conquering land taking land taking territory does that not get you into this regression ad infinitum on who owns the land justly and that i mean i think we've i just imagine if you rewind the clock all the way back you probably have like cavemen fighting over a certain cave right and Probably one caveman bashed another caveman with a rock and made that his cave. And who, who ever justly acquired the land? If we've been violent, violently disputing over land across all of human history. Yes, that's very difficult
1: and uh, very complex and non-trivial to answer with blanket statements. Yeah. Yeah, this, this is where local judges and juries come into place to take every case uh uniquely mm. um and, and rothbard has one in, interesting point uh in this chapter in the regards of what happens if you know that a certain property was owned by someone and then stolen by the state um so let's say you know the uh, the microphone of robert uh, gets mm. stolen by the state and i now steal it from the state bureaucrats uh, or or take it back rather. Right. Uh, then I'm not committing a crime in taking the microphone back from the uh, f- from the state, but I'm still not the just owner of the microphone. Right. Um. Uh, and as soon as Robert comes along and starts to uh, uh, say, "Hey, this is my microphone, and I can prove it right, uh, uh, that I have this just claim. I still have the mm-hmm. receipt and mm-hmm. you know uh, PGP signed uh, and Bitcoin blockchain or t- time chain stamped yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> contract yeah. and everything." Um, then uh, I would have to, or you can use force uh, to uh, convince me to give you the property uh, or, or or the good because you have the just property title in it. Um, but of course, it is often very difficult of who actually owns those uh, goods because they were often furthered in production stages, and so uh, you some people get you know the state uh, takes a bunch of iron. Uh, and all of that builds a bridge, you know, mm. um, um, with machines that were stolen too, and and with money that was stolen that mm. paid for the labor and such. Um, so who owns the bridge? Uh, mm. That is very difficult. And here, then, the answer is uh, to treat is uh, to to treat it as if it were a unclaimed resource. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the first entrepreneur who, uh, uses that resource and uh, who advances it in further production stages, uh, and who intermingles his labor with that good, uh, can claim it his just property, uh, and, and from there on I'll pursue.
0: So, oh man, I'm, my mind's jumping ahead to the last chapter, but I'll save it for now. Um, It's just so confusing how you untangle all of this, you know. But to your point, where if you can trace the title transfer of property, like as far back as you can trace it, then you have the the right. uh, Essentially, the original, the identified original owner has the right to apply force to reclaim title that was improperly transferred. Yes, but the further you go back in that. Tracing process, the more murky things become can become right because not only are you dealing with the with trade networks, right? Like you said, the bridge you've got metal that came from here and you know uh, paint that came from there. It's just coming from all over the place. But you also have state interference throughout all of these uh, trade networks and logistical processes. So it gets very very murky. But I guess the the Rothbardian counter argument would be. And this was a key point for me that every time we say the just owner of the property can, you know, uh, uh, take him to court or go to arbitration. I always thought in my mind, this was an appeal to a higher authority, but I think the Rothbardian argument is that no, there would be a distributed network of these arbitrators or judges. It's like a free market for arbitration.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, Exactly. Because it is so complex uh we need to have uh the free market incentives and and failure mechanisms built in mm-hmm. right, as a skin in the game and, and a, pro- a properly uh you know positive sum game um and you know as you see with as as long as we have a clear title or a clear history of the changes to property title then everything is pretty straightforward mm-hmm. right that's where we see why property rights work right and the yep. homesteading principle and and voluntary exchange they work it's, it's a solid principle but if we if we lose the ability to um to kind of search for and and find those title transfers then yes then we we return into a state of chaos where we no longer know who owns what right that's that's where we we fail as humans to to peacefully resolve the conflicts of of scarce resources Mm -hmm. um so that's another strategy right is then to build better property rights system transfer systems That are robust and resilient and that cannot be destroyed. Um, Mm -hmm. Hint, hint, Bitcoin, um, which is incredibly useful to have a long lasting
0: and resilient proof of certain ownership uh, titles. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the state right now, it arrogates itself the sole privilege of tracking these ownership titles across time. And this is a real problem in many parts of the world where land registers are, you know, corrupted effectively they'll just say you th- you th- you think you own a piece of land one day and then the state updates the list and says no you don't this bureaucrat does instead um yeah so that's tricky but i guess when th- it's possible to have property tracing systems independent of the state because ultimately it's just two parties to every transaction and they could contract with a third party to arbitrate dispute. It doesn't have to be a top-down monopoly on violence, uh, controlling the courts or arbitration. They can they can just be a, a, an independent third party, just like we have. Rothbard makes a point. We have this already in the world. We have independent arbitrators, et cetera, et cetera, despite the imposition of, of government court systems. Yes, exactly, and and that's where most of
1: comp- uh, or most of conflicts are re- resolu- resolved. Um, yeah. uh, but because it is much more efficient. Right? Uh, again, here, if you want to wait on public court systems owned by the, and operated by the state, it's going to be extre- extremely expensive, uh, but very time-consuming, and the end result is often not going to be just. Uh, the yeah. rulings of those judges are. are uh, oftentimes, very much not in 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 line with reality and with, with actual property rights, uh, and and that's in, in part, I believe, because mainly state judges are not at all responsible for for their actions. Right, uh, if they have a bad ruling that is that is obviously wrong, uh, they have no personal uh, responsibility and, and uh, reliability for this. Right, they yeah. no recourse to pay damages or somewhat. And mm-hmm. in in a libertarian society, that would very much be the case. Uh, if you as a judge make a, a bad ruling um, that uh, that uh, leads to some uh, innocent person being violated uh, based on your court, then that is a uh, uh, a, a an, an aggression, right? This they can be the sued. As the, yeah. Exactly. It's the same as the police officer kicking in the door of an innocent person, basically.
0: Mm. That's fascinating. That is a totally new way to look at it. <clears throat> okay. Um I'll read another excerpt here. Rothbard says, but government has no money of its own, and payment of its debt means that the taxpayers are further coerced into paying bondholders. Such coercion can never be licit from the libertarian point of view. For not only does increased taxation mean increased coercion and aggression against private property, but the seemingly innocent bondholder appears in a very different light when we consider that the purchase of a government bond is simply making an investment in the future loot from the robbery of taxation. As an eager investor in future robbery, then the bondholder appears in a very different moral light from what is usually assumed, unquote. This one hit me like a ton of bricks, too. Um the risk-free asset in the world is the U.S. Treasury bond, <laughs> and Rothbard is making the pretty clear point to this lens of libertarianism that they are essentially investing in the future cash flows of this coercive enterprise called the state, or what he says here, loot from future robbery, the future robbery of taxation. So does that mean it is, I mean pretty clear i think that it's immoral to even hold government bonds yeah it is and the unfortunate thing is that
1: that's you know already like this is no new fact i think even even in established fiat circles everyone says that the reason why government treasuries is the zero risk asset is because they will always get the taxes right because Mm -hmm. they have the ultimate force to to make that payments happen Mm -hmm. um so this is you know the that's the reason why it's the zero risk asset, uh, and that's just morally okay all of a sudden to fund the criminals um, and, and to to get the money off the future loot. And right. this, this is this is really the disturbing thing. You're literally the capitalist uh, to a mafia organization. Uh, you You are funding uh, mobsters uh, to to violate the property of peaceful individuals on an ongoing basis. Uh, it, and that
0: is is truly evil. Yeah, this is a deep point. You know, there's the old adage, there's only two certainties in life, death and taxes. And I think what's interesting here is that you're actually investing in this constant of human action historically, which is that coercion and violence works, right? That you can put a gun to the head, so to speak, or, you know, put people under a certain Compulsory legal framework such that they always pay their taxes, or else, you know, they face the threat of force or jail. And even if they don't pay the taxes, right? Even if everyone rebels and says we're not going to pay the taxes, they can just print the money in a fiat regime. Right. So, like the the risk of default on a US treasury bond, for instance, is effectively risk-free if, you know, absent Bitcoin, take Bitcoin out of the picture because they can just print money or impose the taxes and no one has any other choice. What's your choice? Bury gold in your backyard and try to transact in a a, a very uh, cumbersome analog currency.
1: And that just adds another layer of evil to the fiat scam, right? You, you print a whole bunch of money so that everyone is forced to make uh, investments. And then you propose... Uh, funding the mafia organization uh, as being the lowest risk investment. Mm -hmm. Therefore, uh, most people will put a portion of their capital, a decent portion of the capital in a investment where they can get at least some return, Mm -hmm. uh, but Mm -hmm. where supposedly they have the least risk, right? To, to still keep their uncertainty in check. Uh, It's, it really is a, uh, it's, it's a wicked, it's so wicked uh, how the incentives are skewed here to, Uh, for people to have their savings distorted and therefore to run into some form of protection uh, uh, for their capital, and then they run into the arms of of funding the mafia.
0: Yes, Uh, Mises makes this argument in human action that, and again, this gets back to this universal that I've outlined before, this human proclivity to seek something for nothing. So Mises made the point that entrepreneurs historically like people that had accumulated wealth they wanted to be able to put that wealth somewhere outside of the market which is say in a risk minimized asset and the one that generates the highest return would obviously be favored and that's what that's where that's how you, you know government debt was capitalized because the government was saying here's a risk-free return on capital so it drew in um it drew an in investment basically but the deep point here in my mind is okay we're we're right back to the crux of this logic of violence because now if with bitcoin in the picture people do have an option to store their wealth outside of the government system in something that can't be inflated or easily taxed so There seems to me to be at least the possibility that this constant of compulsion historically could give way to the constancy of something like Bitcoin. It's like it's even, it's almost like Bitcoin's the third certainty, as I've kind of joked, but not really joked. It's like death taxes 21 million. You now have a third option that's independent of the monopoly on violence and coercion. Yeah. It's a, it's a game changer. Uh, it, it
1: really is, um, of, of course, limited in extent, right? Mm-hmm. There's still other property that can be stolen, mm-hmm. but monetary property is, is for sure the kicker, right? Uh, whichever incentives control that, uh, have a massive impact on, on human action uh, in general. Mm-hmm. So uh, having a money that is, uh, unconf- unconfiscatable is for sure a, a, a big benefit. Um, a, But again, we must not stop there. Like, it's really not enough. Um, You need to have private court systems that justly uh, and and correctly um, uh, allocate property rights in dispute resolutions. And you need to have private uh, uh, security agencies to protect and reclaim uh, stolen assets uh, uh, according to a just process, right? All, All of these things do need to be um kind of aligned of, of course stock mar- stock markets right are essential um uh, and you know ca- uh, capital markets stepped markets and such uh, all of these property rights need to be clearly protected mm-hmm. um in order to really get to the fullest of what a free market society could accomplish uh, and that unfortunately is way more than just bitcoin
0: yes indeed um you know, We were talking a little bit offline before this about the origin of the state, which we'll get into a bit more in a couple of chapters, but I'm, I can't help but wonder here if the debasement of money or we could say fiat currency in the extreme has been a contributing factor to this. Because had, had Bitcoin existed historically, I think it just In my mind, the economics are such that the state would have never grown to the size that it is today. It would have just, it would have created a lot of decentralizing pressure on states. So we'd probably have we, whatever the number is, two hundred nation states in the world today. We'd probably have you know an order of magnitude more than that. Excuse me. Do you think that's part of this? Is that states were able to just bloat their own bureaucracies through inflation? And that's how they've become they've gotten so far away from their you know uh, original intent of affirming private property rights i think that it was not just
1: inflation but interventionism in general it was mm-hmm. interventionism in monetary policy uh a lot of inflation of course the the key part yes mm-hmm. it was a lot of interventionism in in schooling uh, I, I think that was uh, mm-hmm. key uh prussian outcome-based education systems um, uh, and of course, agriculture, uh, and the misalignments here with, with grants and, uh, and massive money flows and sanctions, uh, on what to grow, you know, the, um, again, the, the, the extent to, of government meddling in production stages is wicked. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, t- t- tangling all of that out is, is a big task.
0: Hey everybody. or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider NIDIG your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. We'll shift into chapter 25 now, which is on the relations between states. And Rothbard is writing about a situation uh, of violence between Jones and Smith. So he says, quote, To be more concrete, if Jones finds that his property is being stolen by Smith, Jones has the right to repel him and try to catch him. But Jones has no right to repel him by bombing a building and murdering innocent people or to catch him by spraying machine gun fire into an innocent crowd. If he does this, he is as much or more a criminal aggressor as Smith is so i think the general point here he's making is that if you're going to have self-defense it needs to be directed at the aggressors specifically collateral damage in terms of hurting other people innocent people is not justified exactly and force must be targeted
1: against an aggressor in, in in order to be defined as defensive force and if if any type of force is applied against innocent bystanders uh then that is aggression against those people so the uh, quote unquote defender from the first round actually turns into the aggressor uh and the the same holds true if uh, these two people fighting over property have have both men along their side fighting and so if a small war breaks out among uh, smith's uh, henchman and jones bodyguard uh the same rules apply right uh, uh for every one of these actors, uh, any stray shot that hurts an innocent bystander, or even you know, violates the, or harms the the house, for example, you know, a window breaks, for example, that is a harm done uh, mm-hmm. to to a scarce resource. Uh, so a- every one of these soldiers are then uh, by themselves uh, responsible for their actions.
0: That's a good point. He- <clears throat> I guess this means that a just war. I think he's basically saying that it doesn't really exist in a way. I, you, you'll have to remind me here, because war, by its very nature, is kind of an indiscriminate violence, right? It's indiscriminate mm-hmm. affair where you're, and there's sort of rules of war where you're, you know, you're not supposed to bomb uh, civilians and. And whatnot, but I think he's making the point that something like a nuclear bomb could never be justified because you're, it's un, it cannot be specifically targeted against aggressors. It's just an indiscriminate killing device. Exactly. All right. So, to if there were
1: a case where you know some property was stolen and the victim uh, harnesses a, a couple of soldiers and makes a targeted mission to retrieve his property. And he only harms uh, the the property in in land and resources and and humans uh, uh, from from those people that were directly involved with the attack. Right? Would that be a war? Um, I, I don't know. maybe, you know, under some prolonged conditions, but but as you say, you know what what we think of war is usually a much more brutal and and violent act where a lot of violence is unjust. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the defining characteristic I think of the word. Um, and yes, that is then not really possible, right? If, if we have uh, uh, this this killing spree of also innocent victim, uh, and again, just as soon as, as, as one stray uh, bullet hits a window, it's no longer a quote unquote, just war. Right.
0: <sighs> yeah, and he's, <clears throat> how does he put it? He goes, so, so of course the bow and arrow could be used for aggressive purposes, but it could also be pinpointed to use only against aggressors. Nuclear weapons, even conventional aerial bombs, cannot be. These weapons are ipso facto engines of indiscriminate mass destruction. Um he does say that there's the only example would be if there were a geographical area where all criminals were inhabiting it at the same time. But that seems pretty unlikely. Yeah, that's that's another of these things that in, in theory it's very
1: clear right uh, if, if there were ever a place where really only convicted and, and acknowledged criminals are uh, th- who all deserve to die right who have all mm-hmm. at least taken the life of someone else mm-hmm. um, uh, th- th- no petty bubblegum thieves right right, right. Um, if we would ever have that scenario right? or or on the other hand if there would be a scenario where there's one person, Uh, standing in the middle of the desert and he's he's a criminal and a nuke would only destroy him and nothing else right and and the land where that person stands on is is either the the land of the criminal or the land of the person of the victim um uh, you know so so no third party's land gets violated um then that that case would make these weapons still justifiable but yes the, the 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 likelihood of such a scenario uh, is t- t- tinyly slim. Like that's uh-huh. basically a joke, right? So, um, therefore, these weapons are um, very likely to be used as uh, as war instruments uh, with uh-huh. innocent victims. Um, but uh, a- again, like the, the the threat must be palpable and 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 immediate, right? Uh, so, just having a a atomic bomb, I, I would argue might not be enough to actually be counted as as violence uh because mm. just having potential doesn't mean that you're actually going to use it um but still
0: yeah <clears throat> it seems like again things in the event of actual warfare to try and untangle the property right violations and violence and who was justly aggressed against and who was acting in self-defense. I mean, it just seems like it borders on impossible. Um, But I, I guess the bigger picture here is that under a libertarian in a world under libertarian philosophy that you wouldn't really have war in the same duration or scale as we're, Currently accustomed to it because again we're accustomed to wars between states, right? These giant criminal organizations, whereas presumably in a libertarian world, would just be much smaller, right? They'd be much smaller, localized skirmishes versus something like World War One or World War Two. Yes, and and hopefully very accurate guns.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and I mean that's that's really one benefit for having these you know drones with uh, with guns if of high accuracy and and uh, mobility um, that makes targeted uh, attacks with less casualties uh, possible. Um, now, of course, the big question is the person who controls that drone, uh, who is right. he targeting—an actual yeah. uh, a victim or uh, an aggressor?
0: Yeah, <sighs> that's a. That's a lot to get your head around too, because it seems like I mean, today the the largest states are the ones that have recourse to drone weaponry. It's not like citizens can go buy these things at ace hardware or something. <laughs> um <clears throat> okay, so
1: also Rothbard makes it this, you know, he he continues the thought experiment that that because it is so Like because uh, nukes are or these massive weapons of mass destruction are 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 really not usable by any individual for targeted self-defense. Therefore, even in a free society, right, having uh, or a a disarmament of nukes and mass destruction weapons would be desired, Um, which which is interesting, right? Because that kind of goes back to to your more game theoretical analysis of this, uh, where if if a free society would be for disarming uh, uh all these nukes and for for not having them mm-hmm. based on the fact that they are just not ethical to use um that leaves you open uh for other people having them you know mm-hmm. and ultimately destroying you while, while you cannot retaliate
0: yeah i had um some conversations recently where and these are people of more Let's say a scientific bend. And there's they're making the point that it's not going to be long before nuclear weapons are developable by individuals, really. You could just, you know, create one in your basement or garage, so to speak. So I wonder what happens then. It's like, how do you say you could 3D print a nuke, something like that? How what? <laughs> the i mean it's so hard to get my head around the consequences of that because all it would take is one person that wants to wreak indiscriminate damage and they just print up a nuke and set it off right and then this whole chain of events would then unfold it's like okay all of these people were aggressed against killed property was destroyed etc there's going to be uh people seeking retribution for that but against who like could you even identify the guy that printed the nuke in his garage um yeah, I don't know it's kind of a bleak chain of events unfolds when I think through that process.
1: Yeah that's true you know, and and interestingly if you don't know the killer, uh, then then yes you cannot apply force against anyone and right? if if uh, if you don't know who actually did it yeah uh, that that's a very interesting spin on it too. Um, uh, of course goes for everything, not just mass destruction weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, also like it's, I'm guessing it's not too difficult to build, a, an atomic bomb, you know, or at least most of the knowledge will be out there and you don't have to discover the knowledge of how to do it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if, if it's easy to get a step-by-step guide, but I'm sure it's somewhere out there in YouTube yeah. or, or in somewhere, of course. Um, but, um, yeah, it's it's kind of a miracle that it has not yet happened, right? and yeah. it's 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 not just the atomic bomb, right? There are numerous types of of mass yes. destruction uh, ways. Um, yes, uh, arguably. So let's see let's see how it goes in the future. Um, but w- w- what it is interesting is that these levels of mass destructions could could really only come up in a, in a system of of state monopoly uh, of of violence, right? In uh, I, I would argue that, um, uh, that the deans or I mean, it's interesting because uh, globally speaking, there are numerous states as monopolies of local violence, uh, but on macro scale, they are in an anarchy amongst each other. Right? There's mm-hmm. not really mm-hmm. one clear um, uh, controller of, of, of the system. Um, and in, in that state of multiple monopolies still competing at a macro scale, uh, that's kind of where we saw uh, mass destruction weapons evolve. Right. So I I wonder how that will change in, in a free market protection system.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess, presumably, again, you don't know, we don't know if you have reduced the incentives to violence, which is to say that there's less to be gained from aggressing against someone else, which is something that Bitcoin brings into the picture that, um, you know, the cost of creating a nuclear weapon and um, and executing a weapon or detonating a weapon, and then the, the risk associated with that would deter many would-be attackers from going that route. Um, You know, I think to your point is that it was the scale and scope of contention between states, right? That that really gave rise to nuclear weapons in the first place that would not, again, presumably would been less likely to have occurred in a libertarian world of smaller states or governing bodies. I don't know what term we would use here. Yeah, but- but in the transition, it's interesting because like they're already a fact of history now We have nuclear weapons, and I'm sure the knowledge is out there to some extent. So I wonder how I wonder what that looks like now transitioning from a world of statism to libertarianism how nukes may or may not be used yeah the the interesting thing is that
1: when you localize uh the the monopoly of violence more and more, then mass destruction weapons become less of a a useful tool right because the local mm-hmm. sheriff is not going to use a nuke to blow up uh you know the the gang from downtown yes um, yes yes because he himself would be affected by the blast uh, so with a uh, nukes in, the, in that sense only makes sense for for interstate warfare right because mm-hmm. you can blow them on on another country where, where you're not affected mm-hmm. um and it it's uh you know also if if you would have local kind of revolutionaries um it, it is it is easy for for local uh, force to be pinpointed right a, a sniper rifle uh somewhere uh, locally uh but for for these long range um uh, kind of affairs uh pinpointing targets especially the the state right which which is this, this big behemoth uh, or, or entity um is is difficult to do and and ultimately uh the state claims uh, all the citizens on its local territory uh, and can compel them to join armies, mm-hmm. uh, and and of course tax them. So any the citizens of any other state in are in times of war always considered as as uh, potential um, threats, uh, and therefore again the incentive to just nuke the territory is is much higher in interstate war rather than local state war.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other component here is that. In a libertarian world, there would be much more trade occurring, so there'd be much more economic interdependence, which would further reduce the incentive to aggressing against others, right? It would just be more profitable for both sides to have long term trading relationships versus contentious, aggressive relationships.
1: Exactly, and and nukes will destroy the the, the machinery and the mm-hmm. factories of the other guy, and therefore he will no longer be able to produce the things that you would need, uh, and right. you can no longer acquire them in trade. Uh, so yes, absolutely. The the more the the trade of of the market and the production stages interweave, uh, the more a, a taking taking away part of the other's economy will affect your quote unquote local economy as well. Mm -hmm. It's basically the same thing.
0: Yes. Yeah. um, It's interesting. um, What's coming to mind here is the William, William James, the American pragmatist. He wrote about the moral equivalent of war. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. He was basically making the case that he did not believe humanity would ever rid himself of the horrors of warfare until he developed a moral equivalent for it. And his general point was that we have this competitive energy, this animus, this natural proclivity to be contentious with one another. We needed an outlet for that. (laughs) And historically, war had been the thing. It had been the outlet. It also had been the great unifying force, right? When you actually point people towards a common enemy, you know, it, it it aligns all of your production process, your moral fabric. I mean, moral might be too strong of a word, but people get pointed in one direction is kind of the point. And he was just arguing that until we had a surrogate for war that was morally superior, that we would just always have warfare. And I can't help but think about Bitcoin as a possible candidate for that, that we at least start competing in terms of Bitcoin mining, right? It becomes this very real competition amongst everyone worldwide to try and um, really just any excess or stranded energy you have, you can channel that into Bitcoin production. And then by virtue of having people plugged into the Bitcoin network, more property uh, and wealth is being preserved in Bitcoin, which is an inviolable property, more or less. So then, that further dissuades the incentives from violence, right? You, you're um, you're reducing the carrot, so to speak, at the end of uh, any course of course of chain of events. So then, this is just kind of pushing people to direct their these animalist or. These competitive energies, let's say, towards entrepreneurship and away from statism.
1: Yeah, one one would hope. The question is if if that's a true substitute good, right? I'm um, I'm guessing that uh, killing someone and, and looting his uh, his wealth feels different than than trading. <laughs> yeah, but um, I mean, yeah, we'll see how how it plays out. But I think it's going to be. Um, well, it, again, it's, it's more than just the money, right? You can, you can still steal a lot. Um, so yeah. it, 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 it will see there. And, and that's also, again, the cool thing that the, the earth is a great, huge place and there will be local areas where, um, physical protection is, for example, much greater, right. And where contracts right. are actually honored and, and where stock markets and, and trade and such, uh, flourish, um. And those local areas will will have even more benefit out of Bitcoin than interventionist marketplaces that that just have the the Bitcoin kind of as a black market you know thing and uh, w- with other property rights being violated constantly mm-hmm. and and those two economies will will still or the the free economy will still outcompete the intervened uh, market economy mm-hmm. and. Uh, therefore again giving more incentives for for states to to actually um you know open up um arguably this was less of an incentive currently with with the existing fiat system um i'm guessing but actually you know why why not why why would no state issue a hard money and and uh, give out the property rights even you
0: know in in the past um well, yeah, I mean this kind of gets that the sovereign individual thesis of why US state marginalized capitalism outcompeted communism is because communism tried to just command and control the entire economy from the beginning, right, which did not did not afford people the private property rights necessary to produce more wealth whereas US capitalism or democracy gave people strong property rights early on so they could trade and produce wealth, but only in its later stages has it really started to violate that property. So it was almost like giving, it it incorporated more principles of the free market such that it could generate more wealth and it outcompeted communism. But I guess the reason a government would never just give you sound hard money for good Is because they're always—I mean, they're businesses, right? They're always trying to optimize their revenue. So, with the the, the real strategy being that, again, in a world where Bitcoin does not exist, is just to let your tax base grow as much as possible before you harvest it. It's like this is like forestry, you know—you're letting the forest grow tall and um, and high-quality lumber before you hew it down. yes i i think it will be
1: interesting and of course it it will be uh, the counter pressure here is is more and more of a uh, global statist interventionist program uh with uh collaboration among states and the de facto cartelization of of large states uh to a larger single entity um, mm-hmm. which of course we see a lot of collaboration among states obviously they all, they all peddle the same religion. Uh, So ultimately they support each other, at least in philosophy. Um, uh, And, uh, you know, things like the United Nations uh, and and such. Um, How, and I I think that will also probably come with, with more of a, you know, because currently we still saw the localized monopolization over the fiat interventionism. um, While, Maybe in the future this will also tend to be a, a single global um project where there is really a, a global digital banked currency or something um to to further centralize. Uh I it it might be a potential outcome, um, but again, with all types of cartelization, there is a game theoretic shelling point of defection. Mm-hmm. Um and especially with a big and you know, often an opportunity cost that the that, that bitcoin is even for state participants
0: mm-hmm.
1: um so it's, it's it's gonna be super interesting to see it
0: play out mm-hmm. is that a proper way to look at it then is this bitcoin is the most profitable defection strategy there's ever been
1: yeah i think so it reduces the the cost of of defection
0: I think it, it does so at least for individuals. It even incentivizes um, defection for states, right? Like, for, I'm just thinking of uh, El Salvador today. It's like defect from the IMF, World Bank cartel and just grab Bitcoin in anticipation of future adoption.
1: Yes, but the problem is that uh, if you would fund the state solely from a Bitcoin hoard, right, you're going to have problems. Um, so sooner or later, you do need to well tax, of course, uh, yeah. but then also probably what you want to do is uh, as a state is to go into debt, um, yes. and here here is where the International Monetary Fund has very much uh, p- power and can censor states from a- accessing capital liquidities, and that's one of the things where we're very much not ready for a Bitcoin-denominated credit market. Very nascent industry, and that needs to develop and flourish much, much, much more. um but, but currently, there's just no such option. Right? Uh, so I wonder uh, um, how uh, a bold move like in El Salvador will play
0: out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear it's going to be like long run dampening to the revenue model of taxation and inflation. But I'm just thinking short run, it provides a nation state like El Salvador, which is very low in the geopolitical hierarchy, an opportunity to springboard itself, frankly. it's just it's the same game theory that plays out at every level. It's like once you've figured out the reality of hard money and Gresham's law, and if you move first, you benefit disproportionately at the really at the expense of later adopters, right? People that figure it out later or people institutions or nations that figure it out later um so bitcoin's kind of incentivizing defection by even nation states from this established geopolitical order
1: yes uh i i i would say so um but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, you know, similar as we saw with places like Liechtenstein or Luxembourg or, or Ireland, where a large degree of freedom and property right protections were uh, established. And and these places flourished um, in, in capital accumulation to the local area, uh, ultimately, you know, even benefiting the local bureaucrats and state agents. Um, I think that the, uh, it's going to be the same but bigger Uh, especially because this is now truly native in cyberspace. Mm -hmm. Um, So if there were a a local area to um, define and establish and protect property rights adequately um, and make it possible for for foreigners to create legal entities in in that area, uh, then that's going to be a a great driver of, of moving capital towards there, right? I'm thinking like a Wyoming... A uh, mm-hmm. company that is trivial to set up um, or uh, other places, you know, this, I, I think this, with, with this happening and with Bitcoin making these sorts of strategies infinitely cheaper, and it's like, uh, you know, foreign shore, offshore companies and stuff like this were always possible, just ridiculously expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and with Bitcoin, it becomes a lot cheaper. Um, and not just for individuals, of course, but also for groups of individuals, in, including states.
0: yeah it's it's very interesting because there there's that incentive for defection, but it's kind of like taking a poison pill for the state in a way. It's like they might you know El salvador could accumulate some bitcoin now, enrich their treasury, probably even grow the net worth of their nation as bitcoin monetizes right the I don't i think they have 700 bitcoin in their national treasury, something like that you know bitcoin continues its path toward global monetization over the next 10 or 15 years, the net worth, I don't know if that's the right term to use for a nation state, of El Salvador is going to be much higher as a result of that. But their long-term revenue prospects in terms of inflation and taxation are diminished as Bitcoin succeeds. So there's, there's this like... Trojan horse element to it, (laughs) or you have an incentive to adopt early, but it's also net destructive to your business
1: model. And and interestingly also to, to the war machinery right? Uh, the, Mm. the more the Bitcoin standard evolves, the more difficult it's going to be to print fiat money, to fund atomic bombs Mm. and weapons of mass destruction. Uh, So to tie this back to earlier, right, I think that with a greater proliferation of Bitcoin, that uh, weapons of mass destruction are going to be l- less of an issue, or, th- or at least they will be less produced,
0: mm-hmm.
1: arguably. Maybe they're going to be
0: produced much more efficiently mm-hmm,
1: <laughs> if they're still valuable enough.
0: Yeah. Okay, let's. I'm going to read an excerpt now. Rothbard describes different types of violence. He says, quote, <clears throat> Since each state arrogates to itself a monopoly of violence over a territorial area, so long as its depredations and extortions go unresisted, there is said to be peace within the area, since the only violence is continuing in one way, directed by the state downward against its people. Open conflict within the area only breaks out in the case of revolutions in which people resist the use of state power against them. Both the quiet case of the state unresisted and the case of open revolution may be termed vertical violence, violence of the state against its public or vice versa. And he contrasts that against horizontal violence, which he describes as, quote, except for revolutions which occur only sporadically, the open violence and two-sided conflict in the world takes place between two or more states, i.e. what is called international war or horizontal violence. So it's just distinguishing here between, you know, state clearly is perpetrating violence or aggression against the property of its citizens for through taxation and inflation, all the reasons we've laid out here, conscription as well, which he terms vertical violence, or the other, the, the reverse, which is people overthrowing the state or attempting to overthrow the state in a revolution. That's vertical violence, whereas horizontal violence is this geopolitical anarchy you've described of contentions between states. And it's
1: it's interesting that we had a lot of, uh, or many small kind of localized um, vertical, vor- uh, sorry, horizontal wars. Um, you know, of of some invasions uh, into the Middle East, of course, the world wars and such. Uh, But especially in the last two years, uh, vertical, uh, yes, vertical violence uh, is actually the most uh, common and proliferated Mm. worldwide, right? Especially lockdowns uh, and all types of medical uh, mandates uh, are a, Mm. a clear aspect of that. So even though we might not have a world war in the sense of Uh, vertical, uh, horizontal violence, we do very much have it in terms of vertical.
0: Yes. Since, uh, especially since COVID, you know, it's, it's vertical violence, uh, in the direction of state down onto citizens has been escalated in a way we haven't seen in a long, long time. Right. This includes fiat currency inflation. You know, 40% of the dollars in existence were produced in the past 18 months. Um, clearly, the specter of vaccine mandates, and indeed, at least in the US, I think Biden's pushing that through on federal employees. They've been putting a lot of pressure on employers, on private employers as well. Um There's also, you know, uh, in the US, we've hired like 80,000 IRS agents. So they're becoming much more aggressive in tax enforcement. So, you know, it is, this is, I think it's important here that we view the state as antithetical to entrepreneurship. And this is a point I believe Mises made, I believe I got this from Mises in human action, where he's like, you know entrepreneurs and the free market is creating wealth by making essentially making and trading the state is the exact opposite force of that it's taking it's taking from trading and taking directly and it appears to me that the these depredations of the state have just been escalated The why to me, it seems, I mean, my admittedly biased view is that Bitcoin is really shaking the foundations of the state. And I think they're starting to wake up to this existential threat. You could say maybe Bitcoin and digital technology more generally, like a lot of power has shifted out of Washington, DC into Silicon Valley, for instance, even before Bitcoin. So there's this transformation going on, which I think is us moving from the industrial to the digital age. And I think the state now is starting to take this seriously, starting to fight for its its survival. Yes, and I think we,
1: as you say, right, this is not just Bitcoin. I think we see this in personal transportation with with Mm -hmm. just vehicles and cars, Mm -hmm. incredibly liberation technologies, motorbikes, insane. You know, to have Mm -hmm. something that cheap and that small to deliver you around quickly and fastly and securely Mm -hmm. is is an absolute miracle. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are numerous uh, technologies um of course the internet you know and and personal computing just they have a smartphone in everyone's pocket is is again crazy Uh, so all of these technologies have the potential to be used in a self-sovereign way um with and the uh, the kind of technology to actually use gets better and better with time meaning more secure more user-friendly so as time increases uh, i i see that more and more people are using these technologies meaning having actual defense against the state and against coercion um that is is unbreakable Mm -hmm. um and again with with the advantage of free software right that you can build this and ship it out to eight billion people Mm -hmm. and update it overnight for everyone right All, all of these craziness that that is free software development being applied to the defense of property you know that is free speech and free money
0: um, is is a massive impact mm-hmm. is the is the contention here then we have technological innovation empowering individuals more and more right the internet the you know motorbikes to your point um smartphones uh technology keeps giving people, I guess, giving people more economic independence or power at the individual level, which is an increase to total productivity. But the state keeps trying to harvest that productivity via inflation and taxation. So that seems to me to be this fundamental contention. And that's how I'm framing up the the antagonism between entrepreneurship and statism. Is it, you know, technology keeps it, but in the long run, if you look over the longest scope of history, it's a decidedly one-sided fight, right? Like power keeps decentralizing. We keep, we've moved from the ancient uh tyranny of Egypt, for instance, where there's just a Pharaoh or a, a couple of Pharaohs that are fully sovereign. Everyone else is effectively a slave to today, even though citizens in Western, in the Western world, we have all of these aggressions we suffer against our property and person from the state, it's still way better than it was 5,000 years ago, for instance. So is that the primary contention here? Because I've been thinking, you know, Peterson talks a lot about power. And I think his interpretation of it is always the arbitrary power of one group, of one configuration of willpower over another, or one individual over another, one group over another but what seems to be driving it mostly is is the economic power enabled by technology right which enables you to either be more powerful individually or resist the the impositions of others yes and
1: it it can go both ways though too right uh, this this Technology is very powerful also to be used against you, mm. um, you know, especially if uh, either the good tools are misconfigured or if the tools are deliberately built in a bad and malicious way, mm-hmm. uh, right? Malware, obviously, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or, or, or all types of, um, and, and again here, right? Difference between uh, ethics and morality, right? Most uh, software applications don't actually steal property from you uh, but they are highly addictive and, and foster certain un, undesired behavior, um, you know wh- whatever that is. Uh, more more on the moral layer. Um, it yeah, and and here again, this is a like a massive experiment. Um, if you give a, a lot of choice of which tools to use to to everyone, um, what will play out? And will, will people even want that choice? Or will we go more into, you know, this kind of WeChat experience where there's just one provider for everything and one Mm -hmm. application, um, or is it going to be, you know, the crazy Linux world (laughs) where you install just whatever application, you know, on whatever operating system and such, um, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, again, ultimately it's, it's about preferences and, um, Oftentimes, centralized solutions are just so much easier to build and are therefore much more widely used. But I do believe that many of the people working on this tech do want to have it secure and and resilient and and uh, with user sovereignty. Uh, that might just be my local bubble where I'm at. It's probably <laughs> a, t- a tiny majority of total developers, but, but um, yeah, it's you know ultimately I think the best tool will kind of win out in In the long run, at least,
0: yeah yeah i i I guess to finish framing the my point on power, and I should have said this earlier is that there's i think about it more in the fundamental physics definition of work over time. you know, the state needs to increase its revenue, it wants the market to produce more power actually. But it wants to do it in a way that it can harvest that power uh-huh. through asymmetric wealth transfers. But the market clearly wants to be able to produce more power to do more work over time, but then store the fruits of that labor in something that can't be aggressed against. So, the, the, and this is like, this gets back to that book, um, Lessons of History by Will and Ariel Durant the hundred page book about all of world history. And it talks about this back and forth between centralization and decentralization, calling it like the heartbeat of history. So maybe, I don't know, maybe that's, what's going on here is this, you have the, you know, the theft of the state or even others sort of driving this standardization or, um, patterning of of technology and and systems into something that's resistant to theft over time. And then uh, the market sort of decentralizing that power, but then the state trying to, you know, as more power is produced, the state has a greater incentive to try and harvest it. So, and- Uh and your earlier
1: thoughts here um, are pretty, you know, Randian uh, from from Atlas Rucked, right? As, as John Gold says, he's he's to stop the engine of the world, mm. um, meaning to withdraw his productive capability as an entrepreneur, and to no longer make it available for state intervention and for state mm. confiscation. Right? He he escapes in, into his John's Gulch, right? Mm. Uh, to to apply his work there and to keep his his fruits of the labor uh, and to not be subject to theft. Uh, and he only comes back into the the fiat world and provides meaningless uh, tasks that are way below his capability. And he, um, th- that's the thing. The state is a parasite. It needs to eat of something. Yeah. And if the host withdrawal withdraws or removes himself or or diminishes its its own existence mm-hmm. to the parasite, then the parasite has nothing left but just to die. Um, mm. And that's what we saw, I, I, I believe, at the collapse of the Soviet Union or, or other communist experiments. Mm. And uh, that it, it just, all productive people left. And you're, mm. you know, uh, every like the, the rest of the crew is, is just misfits who, who don't really know how to solve a problem. <laughs> um, and uh, here again, if that opting out um, and withdrawing your capability, uh, shutting down that engine of the world, if that becomes easier, you know, and especially if you if you can protect your capital, of course, and your savings, and if that is easier and cheaper, then more and more productive people uh, will stop their engine and the parasite will have less and less to feed upon.
0: Mm. That's a good way to think about it, this ratio of... Parasiticism, if that's a word, to production, if it gets too high, then the host dies. And when the host dies, the parasite dies. Um, and really, I mean, that's a nice framing for the importance of Bitcoin too, is that it's just reducing the attack surface of the host to the parasite. Um, almost, I mean, I guess in, well, To your point earlier, not completely because there's other forms of property, but at least in the sphere of money, in theory, it would be complete. It's like you can't steal or inflate anymore. So Rothbard says, quote, finally, we must allude to the domestic tyranny that is the inevitable accompaniment of interstate war, a tyranny that usually lingers long after the war is over. Randolph Bourne realized that quote war is the health of the state. It is a war that the state really it is in war that the state really comes into its own being, swelling in power, in number, in pride, in absolute dominion over the economy and the society. The root myth that enables the state to wax fat off war is the canard that war is a defense by the state of its subjects. The facts are precisely the reverse. For if war is the health of the state, it is also its greatest danger. A state can only die by defeat in war or by revolution. In war, therefore, the state frantically mobilizes the people to fight for it against another state. Under the pretext that it is fighting for them. Society becomes militarized and statized and it becomes a herd seeking to kill its alleged enemies, rooting out and suppressing all dissent from the official war effort, happily betraying truth for the supposed public interest. Society becomes an armed camp with the values and the morale, as Albert J. Nock once phrased it, of an army on the march, unquote. So, I mean, that's a, Scary way to put it, you know, war is the health of the state. So if we're going to live in a world where statism is dominant, we should expect continuous warfare because that is what energizes the coherence and purpose of the state to a large extent
1: exactly right the state is is defined as having the monopoly uh, privilege of or justification uh, to use aggression uh, so yeah if you give someone the uh, the the kind of blank slate of just okay it's all right if you steal and uh, kill um just do as you want basically uh, well obviously he's going to do it uh, and and that leads to to war uh, uh, either between state and, vict- uh, and and citizens or of course in between states um and uh, i think I mean the the state I think especially kind of comes into its full power when the subjects are full of fear, uh, um, more generally. And Rothbard points out that war is is one commonly feared thing. Right, the uh-huh. the enemy army invading uh, the local territory, right? the, and the state then proclaiming himself as as that hero to defend those innocent citizens from the foreign invader. Um, uh, but and, and during times of that type of invasion, uh, of course, we saw, I know, price controls, uh, prescription, uh, and, and all types of interventionism. Uh, but the same is seen with, uh, or, or for example, could be seen if, let's say, a meteor you know, comes along. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there might, again, be a lot of interventionism uh, being done. Uh, or, of course, with uh, a pandemic, a virus, uh, as we've seen, uh, the amount of interventionism uh, has been breathtaking. Uh, just for the fear of a virus, uh, compared to the fear for war.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded here of the Clausewitz quote that war is the continuation of politics by other means. So if war is the health of the state, then that means state enterprise is going to be constantly at war which which we see right in the world today is there's a superpower that's effectively an imperialist. They're at war. The US is at war all over the world all the time, right? It's big business. And then this feeds back, I think, into culture and in that now politics becomes such an important aspect of life. Right? Like politics is the the decision-making apparatus that controls this war machine. And that causes people to overemphasize the political aspect of their identity at both the individual and the group level right And we see in the. US it's it's a mass psychosis as I've argued in some of my writing, I think this is it, which is sort of touched on in the sovereign individual. it's like this idea that politics you know what side of the aisle you are on is a prime determinant of your identity is a modern psychosis. And it's largely based on the the viability of property, right? The fact that the state can go to war and generate revenues from that is what feeds this delusion of politics being so important. Where, in the thought experiment I have in my mind here, is if property were not viable at all, if you could say that everyone was invincible and you couldn't steal through theft, like no one would care about the opinions of others. We wouldn't. We wouldn't be so. Oh, you, you've got to be a liberal or you've got to be a conservative. That just we wouldn't have the incentive in place to have so much concern for the opinions of one another. If we had differing opinions, we'd just go separate ways. But the fact that the reverse is true and that property is very viable, and you know, territories can be conquered, people can be aggressed against, currencies can be inflated. It just pushes the world into this. Mass psychosis of politics, imperialism, and warfare.
1: Yes, and this this kind of public, deco- this difference between left and right politics really is is nonsense. Um, it's it's kind of you know the difference between, well, in a sense, you know, left socialism versus right socialism. Uh, it's all just different flavors of interventionism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there is no. There cannot be a political party that truly advocates for property rights by the fact that political parties steal uh, and mm-hmm. therefore violate property rights. Um, so it's it really seems to tend towards one direction. And you know, as Mises would say, the middle of the road leads to socialism.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this um, I, lo- I love how Rothbard gathers all of the all of these ideologies which we are accustomed to believing are different like capitalism socialism fascism he's gathering them all under the rubric of statism right even capitalism which i know capitalism actually means non-statism or low you know minimized to no government but it's been destroyed that term has been destroyed in the 20th century because now we associate US capitalism with capitalism, and it's not at all capitalism. If you have a central bank, you're not a capitalist society. Basically,
1: yes. <laughs> um I'm mean, but it's also it's always a bit weird to make that argument because you know it's it's the same as all oh, you know, last time wasn't the real socialism, and this time it's gonna be different. Mm. And um uh, so it, it it always feels similar when we're making that argument of oh no we, this this what we have right now isn't the real capitalism you know it's going to be very different in the future um but it, i mean at least in theory that's that's the case i mean that might be because these you know pure theory kind of utopias are maybe impossible to achieve yeah. you No, know, maybe mm-hmm. on the full side uh communism and you know, on the other extreme pure free market anarchy um maybe that's yeah maybe it's it's too extreme uh, or too philosophically kind of pure to be the right um, resolution in in action. Um,
0: we will see. Uh, but the sense that I get, at least, I mean, the benefit that I get from Rothbard's framing is that he's gathering all of these assumably conflictual ideologies under statism, right? Then that that's packaging it More accurately, because it's the state that is the aggressor against property and person, that you know, war is the health of the state, and it doesn't matter what ism you put on the end of it, it's all under statism, so it gives us something to work against. It's like all flavors of statism are something we should move away from, but I agree, it, it does maybe get a little murky because then it opens up this attack vector, if you will, this ideological attack vector of oh well, yeah, we don't want state capitalism, we want pure capitalism, which we actually do want pure capitalism. But I guess my point here is that the terminology gets so murky and confused, mm-hmm. because then people will say, oh, you need pure communism. But communism is not even possible without a state. Because you're you're saying that we're not going to have private property rights. We're going to have all of the property doled out according to the whim of some authority. Right. So you can't, you can't have communism or socialism without the state because nobody, there's no private property rights. If there's no private property rights. There's no civilization. Right. So I, I mean, I'm advocating for the term sovereignism, which is like Bitcoin enabled anarcho capitalism. Um, but I like that. I think that it's very healthy for the world to start thinking in terms of statism and non-statism, whatever you want to call that, um, versus these endless debates between, well, should the government be capitalist, or should it be communist, or should it be fascist? I think all of those arguments just fail. They're just hacking at the leaves. They fail to get to the root of the problem, which is the state itself. Exactly. Uh, Did you steal from someone? That's that's
1: it. Uh, if you did, that's bad. If you didn't, do what you will. Right. Um, it's it's as simple as that for individuals, and it is as simple for that on on thinking on macro levels like like states uh, or, or collective actions.
0: Um, it's yeah. We have so far to go, though. I mean, people still yeah. don't know inflation is theft. They don't understand taxation is theft. They don't understand conscription is slavery, but when you look at these matters through the Rothbardian lens, it doesn't seem like there's much of an argument to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true. Um, you know, oh, that's interesting um, because you know it was with with this rationale, it was always obvious that slavery was a bad thing, right? So. Yeah. Why didn't the people wake up and just abolish slavery uh, because it was bad? Mm-hmm. And I guess, well, the, the mainstream depiction of the history is that well, Lincoln outlawed slavery and therefore everyone just gave it up, right? So it's a state res- mm-hmm. resolution to the problem, which is obviously not what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fact is that using human slaves was way less productive uh, mm-hmm. than using more advanced toolery um, and machinery and roundabout production stages and voluntary consent of, of workers. Um, so it, it was an economical argument that made it unprofitable uh, to, to keep slaves. Um, mm-hmm. And as the productivity per person kind of increased, um, that that was less of a justifiable cost. And therefore, more and more entrepreneurs who were profit-seeking could not carry it and therefore abandoned the practice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and, and arguably, right, if we... Increase the the productivity of individuals with further advanced capital tools, machinery, uh, software, technology, and and other types. Um, and we increase their uh, protective defenses, you know, via sound money uh, and such. Um, that is kind of a, a two way swing of make again stealing less productive, um, or, or sorry less less well yeah, pr- less profitable, right? Uh, more expensive and less revenue seeking and Mm -hmm. that is kind of the next step in abolishing slavery and uh, is just to make it even more costly for for states to intervene
0: yeah 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 Yeah. increasing the cost of violating property right that's like if there if there's a that's the number go up technology yeah that's the metric right that's the metric I guess we should be optimizing for in many ways, right? It's like how hard is this thing to hack or violate, whether it's, you know, a monetary technology like Bitcoin, or maybe like a socioeconomic or arbitration or court system, right? Like what, How resistant is it to corruption or um, asymmetric attack? It seems like there's some, you know, and maybe that is, it is just that simple. It's like cost to violate property. If we can increase that, you can decrease the need to trust individuals, right? You're, you're trust minimizing the socioeconomic fabric, which is something that, you know, money is intended to do, but I think, um, social institutions more generally really are intended to do right.
1: Yes. And and to distribute the risk. And so that there's no longer one central point of failure but that uh, the risk is distributed to to multiple actors and that many of them need to be compromised before the system ceases to function mm-hmm. that's that, that's another thing that is just so cool with bitcoin i mean of course bitcoin uses that in its own security principle but also bitcoin allows second layer kind of security models to build on to be built on top of that mm-hmm. right like multi-signature schemes um where the risk of of holding or, or being responsible for spending their bitcoin is distributed to to numerous actors uh, that's such a powerful tool um, it it truly is mm-hmm. and, and you know it goes exponentially it gets leveraged with better underlying technology you know if we have strong private public cryptography and such you know, for example um that's already great if every single actor has that but then if, if multiple actors can come together to combine their own unique uh, private public key power in this th- threshold or federation principle, right? and then the better the underlying crypto is, the better it's going to be if you federate it, mm-hmm. uh, roughly speaking. Um, and that, that just you know, shows how, how layering these defensive technologies has a larger and larger and larger impact. And Bitcoin is just yet another wave of, of layering these uh-huh. fundamental principles. And the outcome is crazy. And what we can do in the next step, you know, by leveraging Bitcoin and building other systems on top of that, mm. is, is just extraordinary.
0: Yeah, there, there seems to be this, and this is kind of how slavery was naturally uh, disincentivized through free market action. Is that as we accumulate more capital, we're the whole market structure is shifting from labor intensity to capital intensity. So what I mean by that is, at the dawn of the agricultural age, one hundred percent of the workforce is engaged in agricultural production, right? Just to feed itself effectively. Fast forward to today, what five, less than five percent of the global workforce is engaged in agricultural production. To feed the rest of us because of capital, right? We've accumulated capital that's magnified the returns on labor. And so, at some point with slavery, it seems like in my mind that the contribution margin of each unit of slave labor just became less than the cost of enforcing the slavery itself, such that as the market naturally progressed to being more capital intensive, there was less dependence on labor. So, therefore, slavery just dissolved as an institution, Um, I wonder if we're not, I mean, perhaps going to see, we're seeing something similar maybe in the digital age that we're once again, just increasing free exchange so rapidly and capital is magnifying labor in a different way that we're kind of throwing off the yoke of modern slavery, which is statism. Yeah, indeed. You know, and, and hopefully in hindsight, a
1: couple hundred years, we will look back in horror of, of the yeah. crazy schemes that we came up with during the last century um, and, and then realize that, oh, thank God for Bitcoin <laughs> that came around and, and helped tip the scale.